Finally, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> it's been a whole week since we've been in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. i got to tell you, I, uh, I put this sermon together this week, and I, I've redone it three times. You ever done that, Roger? Yes. <laughs> I put it together, and I had, you know, like two and a half pages of notes, and I would. I was thinking about it. Said, you know, I got to add this. I got to add this. Next thing you know, I got six pages of notes, and I still wasn't happy with it. And thought, well, I need to revise it again. And uh, I said all that to tell you that this is going to be a two-part sermon. <laughs> At least, unless, unless you want me to go ahead and preach it the whole thing this morning. You do? Okay. Well, that's what I will do. <laughs> now, this will be a two-part sermon. Uh, the, the, the scripture passage is Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. We are not going to get all the way through those verses. We're only going to get through the first three. And I don't know that we will even get out of that. <laughs> well, I mean, in this passage that, that, that we have from this morning, Paul proclaims the believer's security in Christ. And... The certainty that God has in His love, or the certainty that we have in God's love for us. You remember we talked about Romans chapter 8. This is the pinnacle of the mountain. Romans chapter 1 began the ascent, and Romans chapter 8 is the top of the mountain. And these last verses right here, this is the lookout part of the mountain. I mean, where you look out and just see everything around you. I, I got excited preparing this message. I did. I almost went back to when I was a kid in a Pentecostal church. But <laughs> this is one of those all passages. One of those passages that should drive us to our knees in worship to God. It's a fitting conclusion to the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. It's a chapter that begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. Look at me, look with me in chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now each section of chapter 8, the first section was the greatest part of that chapter. The second section was the greatest part of that chapter. The last section is the greatest part of this chapter. You get where I'm going here? <laughs> I mean, this ought to excite us. Paul asked the question, who can be against us? Now he says here, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? What things? What things is Paul talking about? Everything he said from chapter 1 all the way up to this point. Specifically, I believe, chapter 5 through chapter 8. Everything that Paul's talked about. And I believe that Paul could possibly have chapter 8 verse 17 in mind. Because of what he says here. Look at verse 17. He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul was writing to suffering Christians. He was writing to Christians who were being persecuted at the church in Rome. James, he wrote his letter to church to Christians who were suffering. Peter wrote his letter letters to uh, believers who were suffering. John wrote his letters to Christians who were suffering. You understand that suffering is the lot of Christians? Persecution is what we are, uh, it's what we come to. Paul told young Timothy, he said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so I, I think that Paul could have that in mind here when he says, What shall we say to these things? As believers, we are called to suffer for Christ. Throughout this letter, Paul has been relentless in unfolding the gospel. He has shown us that we are justified by God. That we are reconciled before God. That we enjoy peace with God. We are indelt by the Spirit of God. We are not condemned before God. We are adopted by God. We are glorified uh, by God. And we have help in the Spirit of God. We are called by God and we have the certainty that all things will work together for good to those who are called by God for His purpose. And Paul says, okay, so what do we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Listen, let me ask you something, believer. Did you know that right now God is for you. Did you know that? Listen, it doesn't matter what the world throws at us. It doesn't matter what our enemies come to us. It doesn't matter what the flesh does to us. God is for us. You ever failed God? I did once <laughs> in the last few minutes. <laughs> We all do. Every day we, we, we sin against God. But listen, Paul is telling us here as a believer who is in Christ. Remember those two words. That is the most important part of this whole thing. That's the most important two words in this entire chapter. 
in Christ. Those who are believers, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says, listen, many of us will fail. We, we live in a fallen world. We, there, there is pain and there is hardship and we, we still uh, deal with our sin nature. But we can be assured if we are in Christ that God is for us. You can look at your in the mirror and say, God is for you. God is for me. You understand how important that is? Do you know that when I stumble and I fall into temptation and I give in to sin and I am flat on my face, it is God who picks me up. Sets me on my feet. Dusts me off. Sometimes... You ever heard them belt through the belt loops? That means God is for me. As old Vernon McGee used to say, when God takes us out to the woodshed, that's a sign that God is for me. God is for us. All the powers of hell may come against us, but they will never prevail against us because... God is for us. Paul says, if God's for us, who in the world could possibly be against us? Well, I will tell you, there are many who are against us. But what Paul means is, they won't prevail. They will not prevail against the children of God. If we are in Christ, we have this promise. And how do we know that God is for us? Look at verse 32. Because He did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? If you want to know if God is for you, just simply look at the cross. For it was there at the cross, Paul said, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, let me ask you a question. God went to all the trouble to send Jesus down here to die. To lay our sin upon Him. To watch Him, His only Son, hang for six hours one Friday on a cross. Watch Him suffer and bleed in shame. And yet, when I sin... After having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, for God to say, I'm done with him, is to look at the cross and say, sorry, son, but it wasn't enough. You see how ridiculous that is? And Paul says if God would give his only son for us, if God's work in Christ in Calvary, it ensures us of God's certain, uh, his continued grace towards us. Now listen, verse 32 is not a prosperity gospel verse. Now I say that because I have heard them use this verse. If God who did not uh, spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how would He not also give you all the money you want, all the cars you want, all the houses you want? If I can think of His name, I'd say it, but I can't remember who it was that I heard say that. You'd know Him if I said it. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about something greater than any riches. Greater than any earthly riches. Greater than any well, uh, uh, health that you may need. Paul is talking about what he got to at the, uh, back here in verse um, 19, I think it was. I'm sorry. I don't know why I went back that far. Verse 29. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed. In, in 2 Peter 1.3, Peter says that God said his divine power has uh, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you want to live a holy life before God? He's already given you everything you need to do that. By the way, do you know that all those things that he's given you is found on one place and that's in Christ. It's not Christ plus these things. It is Christ alone. He redeems us to conform us. He will continue working out his sovereign purpose in our lives, conforming us to the image of his son. Can you think of anything greater God could give you? Can you think of anything that God could give you that would cause you to say, thank you for the son, but I'd rather have this. Because it is only in the son that our sins are forgiven and that heaven becomes ours. The cross assures us of the ongoing, unfailing, everlasting love of God for his people. Who can be against us? You know, my wife's favorite psalm is Psalm 27. Right? Okay. I want to read what Psalm 27 says. This first uh, four verses. <clears throat> Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So the psalmist is saying right there, he's saying, if God's for me, who can be against me? You see how the theme runs all through the Bible? Isn't that wonderful how God did that? So who can be against us? And then Paul asks another question. Who can bring a charge against us? In verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Regarding those that the Lord cho has chosen for himself, who can successfully charge us with any crime, with any sin? No one. That's the answer, by the way, to all these questions. No one. Paul gives a God-centered answer when he says that no persecution can succeed because God has justified us. Let me say it again. It won't succeed because I'm a good Christian. It won't succeed because I'm a church member. He didn't say any of those, does he? No, Paul says it won't succeed because God has justified me. When the omnipotent, righteous judge of all the earth says not guilty, guess what? You're not guilty. And when we come to Christ by faith and receive the gift that God offers, that's exactly what God says. He says not guilty. In Isaiah chapter 50 verses 8 and 9. He said, he who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Hang on, lost one place. He will declare, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment, and like a moth they are eaten up. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. I love this chapter. In Zechariah chapter 3, now, now let me give you the broader context of this, this chapter before we go here. The broader context of this chapter is on the nation of Israel. Joshua, the high priest of the nation Israel, and, and, but the principles here apply to all of us. In Joshua, I mean, sorry, Zechariah chapter 3 says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now let's stop right there. Here's the picture. Joshua has gone into the temple. He's the high priest of Israel. He has on all the priestly garb, the robe, the breastplate, with the 12 stones representing Israel, he has the turban on, and he's there, and he's just doing, it, doing what he was called to do. And Satan is there. And he's pointing, and he says, no, he can't be here. He cannot come into your presence dressed in those filthy rags. Well, Joshua's wearing what God told him to wear. But you see, I think the picture here is this. Joshua's outward religion was just filthy rags to God. Joshua's piety and his self-righteousness was filthy rags to God. And Satan is accusing him. And Satan says, he cannot be here. But notice who it is that stands up. It's the angel of the Lord. You know who that is, by the way, right? That's Jesus. And he says, God rebuke you. By, let me read what he said, the way he said it. Well, I lost my place here. And the Lord said, the, Satan, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Now, what we see here, in the one, is the doctrine of divine election. I have chosen them, he says. And I want to tell you something, folks. When I stand before God and I come into this sanctuary and I, I worship God in, in the best that I can in spirit and in truth, Satan is standing there and he's pointing at every one of us saying, they can't be here. They cannot be in your presence. And the Lord stands up and says, I rebuke you. Cindy, who I have chosen. Vern, whom I have chosen. Roger, whom I've chosen. Now, I'm not going to call all your names, but that don't mean I don't think you haven't been chosen. <laughs> Look at verse 4. <clears throat> and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and be and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. They are the men who are, are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have already set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So what happens when Satan points out the filthy garments? The Lord says, hey, you don't worry about this. I've chosen him. And he says, take those filthy rags off of him. Put on a clean turban. Put on a clean robe. You know what we talked about last Sunday for Easter, for, Easter, for Christmas? <clears throat> the doctrine of imputation. If you don't know that word, you need to learn it. The doctrine of imputation. That there at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was clothed in perfect righteousness, looked at me clothed in my filthy rags of sin and said, hey, give me your coat and you can have mine. And that's exactly what happened. You see, Joshua, the high priest, notice what it says here in, in, in verse... Um, Seven down to the bottom of it. He says, I will give you this. I give you this. Joshua, the high priest. Paul says, who is it that will bring any charge against God's elect? You know what the answer is? No one. You know why? Paul says, it is God who justifies. And when God declares us not guilty, we're not guilty. Believers can face the day of judgment with confidence. For those whom God has chosen, he will certainly not be accused on the day of judgment. There's no sin to charge me with. Did you know that? There's no sin. If you are in Christ, there's no sin to charge you with because Jesus bore it all. Some of the one of the greatest lines of any song ever written. A beautiful hymn. And there's one line that I think is the most beautiful line ever written in a song. You ready? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Because God has declared us to be right in His sight, and thus we who would accuse believers and be successful, no one. No one can accuse us. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There are many things in this world that try to condemn us. Anybody remember 
And if you need to go back and look, go ahead. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now. Now. That's an important word in there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes our own hearts try to condemn us. Your heart ever try to condemn you? You know what John tells us? First John, he says, if your heart condemns you, he said, God's greater than your heart. You know, you've heard me say this many times. Don't ever trust your feelings. You'll lie to yourself. Don't ever go by how you feel or what you think. I want to tell you something about sin. I heard John MacArthur make one of the most profound statements about sin I've ever heard in my life. Sin makes you stupid. That's true. So don't ever trust what you think. Satan tries to condemn us, but he can get nowhere, as we saw there in Zechariah. Uh, in, yeah, in Zechariah, Our enemies, our critics, they all try to condemn us, but they will not prevail. They won't. Now, keep in mind, when I say they won't prevail, that don't mean that you may not die. That don't mean you may not suffer. But I'm going to promise you, ultimately, the day will come when you will be vindicated by Christ. I think about the, the, the people in my Christian life, that since I've been a Christian, that have mocked me and laughed at me and told me I'm living in a fairy tale world, you know, pie in the sky kind of thing. And I think about the day that will come when I will stand before Christ and stand beside Christ while He looks at them and say, told you so. That would be a sad day. It won't be a joyous occasion. But it will happen. Marvel at this verse. It is our Savior who died for us, who's been raised for us, and He's now interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Do you know what He did when He died? He took our sin. He took all the sins of God's elect upon Himself, and He bore the righteous wrath of God in our place. But Paul said it's more than that. You know what he did three days later? He rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. Do you know that all th th there are more religions in this world than we can count? And people have asked you, what is the difference between Christianity and Islam or Christianity and Buddhism or Christianity and this? Or, you want me to tell you what it is? It's an empty tomb. That's the difference. Muhammad's bones are rotting in a grave. All the founders of every religion in the history of the world have died and their bones are turning to dust. But on the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus is alive. And Paul says that he is ever interceding for us. He's ever interceding. You know, I, I thought about an interesting story from the book of Acts. Stephen, <clears throat> who stood up and he, he preaches a sermon to the, the people. 
And he basically condemns them for their condemnation of Christ. And so they decide that he needs to die. So they begin to stone him. Now, the Bible tells us over and over and over that Jesus, when he ascended back into the heavens, that he sits at the right hand of the father. And that's right. The right hand is the place of authority. The right hand is a place of power. But it says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. But do you know that when Stephen was being stoned, the heavens were open. He looked up and Jesus was standing by the throne. You see, one of his own was in trouble and he wasn't just sitting there. He stood up and he stands up for us. He's interceding for us, Paul says. You know, let me ask you something, folks. Is it a, does it give you comfort to know that your pastor prays for you? It gives me comfort to know you pray for me. But who would you rather have praying for you, me or Jesus? Really? Not both of us? <laughs> Listen, Paul says that he ever intercedes for me. He's interceding for, he's praying for us right now. It's hard to imagine anything that could give us more peace than to know that you right now are the subject of Jesus' prayer to the Father. Your name is on his lips. Your name is in his heart, and he's praying for you. He's praying for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. John calls him our advocate. Our advocate, a go-between, someone who, who stands in our place. You see, he not only stood in our place on the cross, he stands in our place today. And there is nothing, there is no one who can condemn us. Because Jesus died, rose again. You know what the resurrection means, don't you? You know why it's so important? Do you know that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the very foundation upon which the church sits? Because you take that away and we crumble. But do you know why it's so important? Because Jesus dying on that cross, bearing our sin, being put in a grave... And the third day, the father said, I'm satisfied with your sacrifice. Death has no hold on you. And the stone was rolled away. By the way, the stone didn't roll away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so we could get in. He is God in the flesh. Do we see how committed Jesus is to us? Did you know that he's more committed to us than we are to him? But when we stumble, when we give in to temptation, we remember that Jesus is praying for us unceasingly, fervently, successfully. The Father answers the prayer of the Son. And Paul says here, what do we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? God didn't spare his own Son. He did not spare his own son for you. And if he did that for you, don't you think he will freely give you anything else? Who's going to bring any charge against you? Well, what charge are they going to bring? If Jesus was successful on the cross, and he was, remember what was the last words he said? Well, maybe not the last words, but close to it. It is 
finished. It's done. It's accomplished. What did he come to do? What was accomplished? What did he come to do? Well, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you know what was finished? Sin of the world was gone. Jesus did this. So Paul says, what are we going to say to these things? God's for us. He didn't spare his own son. Who's going to bring any charge against us? Who's going to condemn you? Jesus died more than that. He was raised and sits at the right hand, and today he's praying for you. And we're going to go next week, and we're going to see what's going to separate us from God. And I will charge you, folks, to look through those verses and find me one thing that Paul does not mention. You show me one thing that Paul says can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And the answer to all these things is nothing, no one, never. There is no condemnation. There is no separation. Let me close with a wonderful verse, one of my favorite verses, Jude 24. 25. Now to him, he's speaking of Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, aren't you glad you did say now unto him who enables you to keep yourself from stumbling? He doesn't say anything like that. He says now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Listen, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Here in Romans chapter 8, well, you know what? I'm not even going to say that. I'm going to say this. Beginning with Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8, do you get the idea that our proper response is to fall on our knees before a holy God and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that because of Christ, I will never be condemned. Thank you that because of Christ, I am justified in your sight. Listen, we, 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 we get into this thing where we have this idea that our salvation is about us. That church is about us. And once we do that, you know what we've done, don't you? We've gotten off into idolatry. It's about Jesus. And it's only about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And it will always be about Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling, to keep us from stone, he will present us faultless before the throne. Can you imagine the day comes, you, 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 you go through the doorway of death, and there's Jesus on the other side. And he puts his hand on your back, and he's like, Father, this is so-and-so. This is one of mine. This is one that you gave me. I know that sounds kind of... I think it sounds wonderful. <laughs> because that's the picture we have. It's all about Christ. Father, we thank you this morning. That in your great love, Father, you sent 
the greatest gift of all, the gift of your son. Father, I pray this morning that if there's one here that they are still dead in their trespasses and